Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another episode of Working Overtime, Working's bi-weekly advice-focused side hustle. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I am your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, how are you? You know, I'm doing okay, I guess. It's been kind of a stressful week. A lot yeah. of meetings, not a lot of time to myself. It's that, I don't know, the Supreme Court said anyone can carry a gun. <sighs> Dogs can conceal carry. New York now. I don't know. It's been a weird time. How are you? Yeah, I would say about the same, honestly. <laughs> I don't have too much to add to that conversation. Don't you think it's also like, I know you are in that weird time where you have essentially finished a big project, which is the book, although there's a lot left to do once it comes out and everything like that. Yeah, that's true. I have my first like publicity meeting with the publisher in five days or so. Yeah. And it's just such a big gear change from like, I have to sit at this desk and get this book done if it kills me. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, now what do I do? Yeah, absolutely. And also it's like, well, I guess it sort of is in my skill set in that I have like I've moderated Q&As before and I've talked right. to like theater managers and stuff about that kind of thing. But like setting up this kind of event is not, I would say, something that I like consider a job that I want to do, <laughs> you know? Now the hunter has become the hunted. The, the, the yeah. cure has become the air. Yeah. So what are we talking about today, Karen? All right. So I really, really love taking listener questions, but I thought that I might pivot a little this week. And since we're both familiar with the freelancing lifestyle, address a question that I think a lot of us had when we were starting out. And I think is still a question that a lot of people have, even if you are in the thick of it, which is how do you pitch a story? To give, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and to give a little more context to the advice that we're going to be giving, I wanted to ask you, how did you get started pitching and what was your experience beginning as a freelancer? I kind of backed into it in a weird way. Like, um, I was a blogger in the aughts, um, you know, and through that, I met a bunch of people who went on to become editors and mm -hmm. things. The two most important ones being Rob Weiner Kent, who became an editor and then the editor in chief of American theater and Dan Coyce back mm -hmm. when he was at uh, New York magazine, actually. Mm -hmm. And they reached out to me for pieces, I think was actually how it started at so that you point. Were just blessed. I, like you were very, very lucky. I was lucky in that I backed into it and a little spoiled by that. You know, the way this is contextually matters is I still get a little weirded out by pitching. You know, it's still a little bit like, oh, God, this is a person I don't know. And I'm so used to doing this with my friends or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I will say that I started out writing when I still had a day job. I would go home and then write posts for a personal blog that I set up. And I would start using those posts to send to editors of smaller sites to sort of show that, like, I can write something that's pretty coherent. <laughs> um, and once I started getting onto those smaller sites, I would use those as my clips, as we call them, for bigger sites and bigger editors to land kind of bigger gigs. 
obviously there's a little more to the story, but that's pretty much what we're going to get into in the meat of this episode. And I wanted to know, did you look for advice on pitching when you started out? And did you ask friends how they did it? Because it feels like your relationship to pitching might be slightly different, given that your start was a little different as well. Yeah, I absolutely, though, ask for advice Mm -hmm. early on. I even asked people to show me pitches that had gotten accepted places so that I could see what the format was. And actually, I should shout out my friend uh, Jason Zinneman, who has pitched a bajillion pieces, a bajillion places. And when I was first starting out, he was like, look, this is what your pitch needs to do. It needs to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And he was extremely helpful in explaining that world. I do think that pitching can be really really mysterious and the mysteriousness of it can be really anxiety provoking to people. Uh, At least it was to me when I'm first starting out. So I'm glad we're demystifying it today. I'm sure we're going to talk about this later, but I think a lot of that anxiety comes, especially when you're just starting out, it feels really personal. It's hard not Mm -hmm. to get emotionally invested in something, even though ultimately the reasons that an editor will say no, probably just have to do with the fact that either they already have something similar in the work or they don't cover the kind of thing that you're trying to pitch, or it's usually not like we don't like you. Yeah, totally. That said, on my end, I don't know how much advice I asked for, but I definitely went looking for it. Like, I would just kind of Google, like, are there pitch guides? And what's also useful is that you, if you find editors on Twitter, more often than not, occasionally they will post calls for pitches where they explain what they're looking for. And in some cases, we'll even post like, here's a guide on how to pitch our publication, specifically like how to structure your email and what kind of thing that we're looking for, which will make your job as a pitcher a lot easier. Absolutely. I should also say one of the really good examples of that is actually Slate's How to Pitch Slate Guide. Mm -hmm. It's very specific. It's very detailed. It has a list of exactly who you should send things to and an example of a successful pitch that they took. Yeah. So looking up the guides is going to be really, really helpful for you to like to be specific as possible. For instance, like I know I have a lot of friends who are editors now and they will often get pitches that are like, for this publication that you aren't actually a part of, can I write this? So it's like, you really have to be as specific as you can in the email, even if you are sending it to multiple people, like make sure the details are right. Make sure it works for that site. Absolutely. And we'll have lots more tips about pitching after this. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. 
It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hey, listeners, is there a crucial part of pitching that we've missed that you want us to address? Do you have a pitching secret? Let us know by emailing us at working at slate.com or even better, you can call us and leave a message at 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-WORK. So speaking of how I found these guides and so on, this brings me to another question, which is how do you figure out who to pitch? And I'll throw that first to you, Isaac. Well, one thing that I would say is that publications have gotten a hell of a lot more transparent about all of this stuff than they were when I was starting out, which I think due to our relative age difference was actually a few years before you were starting out. And even in the gap between those have become a lot more transparent. Like when I was starting out, you know, Twitter wasn't that old. And I don't know that most editors bios would be like, pitch me at in there. They weren't necessarily thinking about it even as a professional thing. And now most places you can Google how to pitch X and find it. And so in my day, that was really in my day. (laughs) So what was it like getting paid in just like turkey legs and bones? I was paid in turkey legs, yes. And you know, I would go and post my articles on Friendster. You would nail them to the front of the like church door. Yeah, exactly. Nail to the front of the the church door, my my Shakespeare analysis. No, (laughs) you know, (laughs) if it was Slate, I would just send the email to Dan. Mm -hmm. And then if Dan was like, I'm the wrong person to send this to, he'd forward it to someone. I mean, you know, we, we developed a relationship very quickly as writer and editor within like two or three pieces. We were corresponding pretty regularly. Um, and outside of that, you know, I would just have to find someone who had been published by the place that I knew and been like, who do I pitch at this place? Who do I pitch at that place? And, and they would sort of, um, let me know. But, you know, okay, I have a, do have a funny story about this that is also about how I got my start. At Slate, <laughs> if, if you can bear with me for a second. Okay. One day on Twitter, I had just gotten off an, a flight and I was feeling very punchy. And I just started tweeting about how Hamlet is fat. I was like, mm-hmm. Hamlet is fat. <laughs> we don't want to talk about this. It's a national scandal that there are no fat Hamlets. And um, a friend of mine wrote me and said, who shall remain nameless, but a friend of mine wrote me and is like, this is a hilarious idea. Here's my editor's email address. Write him and pitch him. Mm-hmm. You know, CC me. We should definitely do this. I wrote that editor. I didn't hear anything back for a couple days. And I was like, well, clearly they don't want it. I'll write Dan and see if Dan wants mm-hmm. it. And I wrote Dan and Dan wrote back immediately that's hilarious. Yes, let's do it. Right. And I did it. And that piece which was called is Hamlet fat, a slate investigation was a big hit. I mean, people still joke about that piece with me today or talk mm-hmm. about it today for whatever reason. And after it was a big hit, the editor at the original magazine writes me back and says, Hey, I'm really sorry that I missed this. Obviously we should have published it. It, it came out really well. You know, uh, I hope we'll be able to work together in the future. Mm-hmm. And I wrote back and said, Hey, no hard feelings. It's great. I totally understand you're busy. I actually have another idea for a piece here. It is. And then he never wrote me back. Oh again. man, come on. Amazing. Right. But again, it's not personal. As you yeah. said earlier, it's not personal. It's just, you know, he had a million other things to do and it just slipped his mind. 
Yeah, I feel like I say this a lot in our kind of more advice-oriented episodes, but really in every aspect of your life, it is really important to just exercise some common sense. Because as you're saying, like, one of the really important things to you is, like, developing this relationship with Dan. And it is really crucial to develop a good working relationship with your editors. And that's only going to happen if you use your common sense in how you interact with them. Like, respect their time, respect the time they're spending on you to look over your work and stuff. I mean, not to, like, rag on people, but talking to my editor friends about some of the worst experiences that they've had, they're always like, this person doesn't take any of my notes. They just reject everything. They pretend that they basically haven't heard me. That's not a good way to work with somebody. Like if you get a note that you don't like, don't pretend it's not there. Like try to work it out with the editor. It just like be nice, be a nice person. I do think, you know, the editor-writer relationship is a professional one and it's yep. a creative one, but you are also two human beings, yeah. you know, and you have to remember that particularly if it's an online publication, that editor is is dealing with like dozens of moving parts at once. and If not um, hundreds, yeah. If not hundreds, yeah. And one of the things that you can do that will make you more employable with them in the future is to not make their life more difficult. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's not to say hide a disagreement if you have one. Like, yeah, you shouldn't, yeah you shouldn't avoid conflict or anything like that, but it's just like file clean copy, you know, try not to make mistakes, be considerate of their time, try not to create fires that they have to put out and, you know, take their point of view seriously and write and deal with them in a polite fashion. All right. So now let's get to the really big question, which is how does Isaac Butler structure a pitch? Walk me through what your typical pitch email looks like. Sure. So uh, I do it by hand delivered letter. <laughs> That's right. You um, mail it to the with church glitter, store. <laughs> glitter inside, you know, so they open it and poof, glitter comes Wrap it out. Up and, and put all it on the leg stuff. of a pigeon. Yeah, exactly. No. Um, so this might sound obvious, but to get back to how beleaguered our poor editor friends mm-hmm. are, the thing your pitch needs to do is to convey to a very busy person what the piece is actually going to be like in a way that is exciting to read. Like the pitch needs to be exciting and fun to convey some of the sense of excitement and fun, both of the piece itself and of what you will be like to work with. Mm -hmm. Um, Editors work extremely hard. As we've all said, they have to field a bajillion things an hour. So Mm -hmm. I start with a greeting. I do a grabby sentence or two. You know, think of it as like the cold open, you know, Um, (laughs) the freeze frame with like, yep, that's me. You probably wonder how I got myself. No, but you you do a grabby sentence or two about the main thrust of the piece, then explain in greater depth why someone is going to want to read it, what you have to say about it, you know, what is the burning question you have here and what your provisional answer is. Don't just ask questions because then they'll be like, well, do, do you have an answer for that? What's going on, buddy? Um, and if I don't know them and haven't worked with them before, I'll do a couple sentences, maybe a paragraph about myself with links to representative mm-hmm. clips and pieces. So again, with that Hamlet piece, you know, I started with, I want to write, is Hamlet fat a slate investigation? Because I knew what slate investigations were. Yeah. And I knew that this was like the perfect fit for that. And if I gave it that title, Dan would know exactly what I was talking <laughs> about. And then I sort of went into that being like, I want to use this as a way to introduce readers to how Shakespeare scholarship really works and how you know what Shakespeare meant when he said anything, you know, and then what are the issues in there, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And then because Dan and I already knew each other, I had written one piece for him already. I did not do the whole, as for me, 
Yeah. I'm blah, blah, blah. You know, what about you? I mean, I think you basically have it down. Like that is what a good pitch should look like. So my answer is going to sound a little bit repetitive. So for me, pitches roughly follow this structure. You say hello, obviously, and then you have two light paragraphs about what you're pitching. The first one is where you really put in, this is my thesis, this is the main topic of what I'm going to talk about. And the second one usually will explain it a little further, kind of getting at more granular details. This is also where people tend to say that you need to explain why you think you should be the person to write this piece, which I think is crucial to understand can be kind of on two different levels, whether it's because you have a really personal connection to the material or because you're an expert on the subject slash have something unique to say, which is maybe the most important thing because you don't want to pitch a piece that somebody has already published to them. Um, And then after that, you have a couple lines with a little more background about yourself and links to other works that you've published that'll show off what you're capable of and like other people who have trusted you basically to write something for their site. And then a nice thank you and a sign off. All right. So now that we've talked about how to get the plane off of the ground, what do you do after that? How long do you wait to hear back before you follow up with the editor? Okay, let's be honest. What I do after that is I reload the inbox of my emails (laughs) every five minutes. And I go, is my career over? Do they they hate (laughs) me? Is this the worst pitch they've ever seen? Oh, my God. Am I going to be drummed out of the industry. What have I done? What have I done? What have Mm -hmm. I done? Uh, And then I'm like, just put your phone down and do something else, Butler. And then I go do that. Um, But in terms of how long you wait, a week tops, I mm-hmm. would say, before following up. I I, I usually do less than that, actually. Mm. Um, if I'm worried about the story going cold, you know, it's a movie coming out and you might, you know, you need to get in touch with the PR person and book an interview before a thousand other outlets do or, you know, whatever it is, I might um, follow up faster than that. But either way, the follow up should just be short and sweet. You know, hey, Karen, uh, just checking to see if you're interested and move this to the top of your inbox. You know, hope you have a good one. Isaac, it should not be anything like more needy (laughs) than that. Uh, And then pretty quickly after that, if they don't get back to you, you, you should probably start pitching it somewhere else. Yeah, I I say I I usually give it a week or a week and a half. I should also mention that I really try not to send any emails, whether it is the initial pitch or a follow up on Fridays, because I think that's kind of the worst day to send anything, because that's when you don't want to have anything new in your inbox. Monday is kind of similarly dicey because they're getting a lot of emails over the weekend. But at the same time, it's still a better bet than Friday, in my opinion, (laughs) at least when it comes to my email reading habits. That said, as you were saying, if it's time sensitive, sometimes you will want to follow up more quickly. Um, And that can get a little bit tough because it does feel like you're being annoying. How do you handle that? How do I handle the being annoying? Oh, God. I mean, <laughs> I I am someone who has difficulty asking for things in general. That's yeah. not like my favorite thing to do. You know, I'm someone who like wants to do everything myself. And I don't know. It, it's hard. Um, And so... You just, I just kind of have to get over that. And I just try to be as polite and friendly as possible. And again, keep it short so that I'm like out of their hair. And I just, but you know, if it is a quick turnaround thing, I do say in the initial pitch mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as early as possible in it, because they might not read all the way, you know, like <laughs> the publicist just wrote me and the press day for this right. is in three days. So, you know, can you, is there any way you could let me know within the next day or two? I'd really appreciate it. You know, I do something like that. Editors know that writers have difficult schedules and tricky things and the PR people, especially when it comes to movies and TV, you know, junket days and everything like that. It's very complicated and, mm-hmm. and they understand that. And so you just have to know like, like they've been through it before. Just just be kind about it and expect the same from them. 
Yeah, basically, like, be as patient with the editor as you hope that they would be with you is a good rule yeah, of thumb, totally. I feel like. That said, I get really anxious having multiple irons in the fire in the event that more than one person get, gets back to you at the same time about a pitch you've sent out. But in cases like this where you are trying to pitch something really time sensitive, I'll usually send one pitch to the place that I really, really want to place this piece at. And then I'll give it a couple of days before one following up with the initial editor and then two sending the pitch to a different place as well. Because again, editors, like they know what the writer's life is like, and they're generally pretty understanding if it ends up having been sold somewhere else before they get back to you. Um, And I guess there's one last thing about pitching that we should talk about, which is getting paid for it or negotiating your rate. Because the truth is that a lot of publications, not because the editor is malicious or anything, will try to lowball you just because they don't have as much money as they'd want to pay freelancers. And it is really tough to write back and be like, can I get more money? Because it feels like being ungrateful to someone who's already said that like they want to publish your work. So how do you handle negotiating rates? It's really tough. My friend Jamie Green, who's a wonderful Mm -hmm. author and editor, her piece of advice about this is just always ask for more money and always ask to keep ownership of the writing. Mm. And her point is just do it every time, every time, reflexively. And then it will get easier to do. If it's just your policy that no matter what, I'm going to ask you for more money and I'm going to ask for ownership of the work, then it will stop feeling as bad. That said, do I do that? No. Uh, Sometimes I'm like, oh, uh, $7 and (laughs) half a pound of slivered almonds. Thank you so much. You know what I mean? It's hard. It's hard for me. It triggers all sorts of weird anxieties for me. But you just got to get in the habit of doing it. I think... Obviously, you know, if someone is offering you a rate that's like five cents a word or whatever, it comes out to like five cents a word and you are going to counter them with something hugely more than that. Like it has to be a dollar a word or, you know, whatever. A dollar a word is like almost unheard of. You're not going to get that. I've gotten it a couple times, but it was for actual magazine pieces. But anyway, I'm just saying it's like you shouldn't counter with something that's outrageous. You shouldn't counter with something that is unbelievably far and above what they have offered you. You know what I mean? But you should try to counter with a little, a little, at least a little bit more. If anything, just to get in the habit of doing it. Yeah, I don't think I would say every time ask for more just because that's a lot of work. But It really helps in these scenarios to have a little experience with it. And I mean this in two ways. The first way is being experienced in terms of having other things that you've published to show that you are in demand or are a good writer who deserves to be paid more. And this will also translate to my second point, which is that you'll have a better idea of what different publications pay. So when you go back to someone who's trying to offer you $7 and a bag of slivered almonds, you can say, well, actually, when I was paid for similar work at X other company, I got paid this much and this is my usual rate. Can you try to match it or at least come close? Like that'll help a lot to have that kind of context to give to editors. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So do you have any last pieces of advice for pitching? I'm just going to put this out there and please disagree with me if, if you feel mm-hmm. like it, Karen. Uh, pitching doesn't feel good. It's oh, not going to feel good. Yeah, it's not going to feel good. And that's just, it's just part of life. You just like, sometimes you have to do things in your job that don't feel good. And if you're going to be a freelance writer, pitching is the thing that doesn't feel good. And so you, you just have to work through it. You just have to work past it. But it's not some sign that 
you're especially shy or yeah. you're a bad writer or you shouldn't be doing it or whatever. It's just, it, it, it feels vulnerable to pitch. It's like, you know, back when I was an actor auditioning for things, yeah. you know, it, it's that part of the job. It is, it's going to make you feel vulnerable. It's going to make you feel anxious. It's going to feel a little weird. You're always going to think maybe I didn't write that pitch that well. You just got to do it more and more and get used to it. There's nothing you can actually do about the fact that it feels bad. And yeah. also, it's not personal. Everyone's yeah. just really busy yeah. and trying to put out the best website they can in a day or, you know, whatever it is. And so don't take rejections personally. Keep working at it. And also, of course, know the place that you're pitching mm -hmm. and know that it's the right outlet for the piece. Don't carpet bomb pitch. Editors can tell and they get annoyed by it. Yeah, I guess I have two last pieces of advice. One is something I said earlier, which is just use your common sense in terms of how to treat people, because that leads into my point number two, which is it is really, really beneficial for you to develop a good working relationship with your editor. Because as Isaac says, it is really vulnerable to pitch someone and you will feel better about doing it the more you've done it and also the more you trust the person that you're pitching to be careful with your feelings or to be considerate of your idea and your time that you've sent to them. All right, that's all the time that we have for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things we could do better or questions you'd like us to address, such as, oh, but you didn't address X part of pitching. Can you please talk about this? We would love to hear from you. You can send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. Hey, if you'd like to support what we do, please sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. And you will be supporting everything we do right here on Working. Big, big thanks to Kevin Bendis and to our series producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working. And in two weeks, we'll have another Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.